Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. It is Tuesday, October 17th. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. In Washington today, the nieces of former Hawaii resident Ramona Okamura are going door-to-door at the Capitol. They're asking lawmakers to help get their aunt out of Gaza. Okamura was on a humanitarian mission to help children get fitted for artificial limbs. A Big Island mom confronts her deepest fears when her son is deployed to Afghanistan. She works with the Wounded Warriors Project. Kapuna Wisdom, we highlight an effort to bring Hawaiian knowledge from across the state together in a book. Korea gave us K-pop, and then there's K-beauty. Is there an ugly side of the beauty industry? is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Former Hawaii resident Ramona Okamura is one in a million. The humanitarian worker is one of about a million people in Gaza said to be heading to the Egyptian border trying to flee before Israel unleashes a ground assault. Okamura works with the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. It has been an agonizing week for her family. Her brother Miles talked with us from Holuwaloa on the Big Island, where he's been waiting day after day to see if she will get safe passage out of Gaza into Egypt. It is unclear if a trip to Israel by President Joe Biden will change the military strategy of a ground assault. Miles Okamura texted his sister before she went to bed last night, and she was still at the U.N. compound. We talked to him yesterday afternoon, and he was feeling a bit discouraged at the progress of getting her out safely. We get told when the border is going to be open day after day, and uh, it hasn't come through literally, I think, the last uh, seven days. And uh, I know it was getting a little tense over there based on text messages and all the um, news reports because the the invasion and the ramping up of the violence is imminent. I mean, any hour, let alone any day now. So we're really concerned because of possibilities of accidents and and just, um, you know, bad actors. Well, when was the last time you had a chance to communicate with your sister? Today, and it's nighttime there now, so she's asleep, but uh, today, uh, this uh, last eight hours or so, she has sent out quite a few texts. So her cell phone signal must have improved, or she's using someone else's phone. But uh, we're on a family uh, secure chat group, and uh, and so she's updated us um about her, her her status and her condition and what's going on around her a, a significant amount last night. Uh, they're about 13 hours opposite of us, so it's uh, kind of hard. Uh, you know, middle of the night when we're sleeping, she's awake and doing things. And um, but we we heard from her about the conditions on the ground there and in her uh, where she's staying at a United Nations compound. She spends a lot of time talking about the Palestinians, you know, and the people that are around her, the, the drivers, people that have helped them. And uh, she's got really a lot of compassion for those people, which is why she was there to begin with and goes there every year for the last five years. Well, it is very disheartening, you know, to see just so many innocent people getting caught up in this. And you just... Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty horrific. She emphasizes, I think, in 
every moment of when she's sending us text messages, at least one of them is talking about the children. You know, she's always, that's part of our message, you know, is uh, that we're relaying from her is bring, bring Auntie Ramona home and through a ceasefire or some kind of a um, safe passage. But number two, stop the barricading and the siege of the Gaza Strip where literally a million children live. And um, it's, it's hard. The population is 2.3 million, and, and half of them are children. So I'm going to assume that means under the age of 18. I saw a statistic that one-third of them are under the age of one-third of the population is under the age of 16. They're 15 and younger. So it's a real young population, and Ramona has shared, you know, little snippets of the people around her. You know, one of her drivers has a family of eight, you know, and, and brought his family along with them in the truck to, to the United Nations compound. Their, their home was destroyed, you know. Uh, on and on it goes. And you see the stories in the New York Times and on, on, on other news sites of the violence, uh, the, the victims of, uh, in the Palestinian population. Well, all I can think of is that she's over there helping children who have lost their limbs. And, you know, with this planned offensive, you just worry about how many other children, you know, will will also be hurt or killed in these raids. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just unthinkable. I, I can only imagine what's going through Ramona's mind because she's physically there. She's been there for five years in a row. She, for some reason, she goes the same time on her, on her birthday, you know, all she does is deal with kids with missing limbs and uh, trying to fit them with prosthesis. And so to her, the world is full of children injured by warfare. And now it's going to be more brutal than ever. And I, I can only imagine what's going through her mind and worrying and thinking about the kids that she's going to go back and help. And I'm, I'm fairly sure she's going to go back. <laughs> and that's, that's the kind of person she is, you know. Well, this weekend I thought of her because in my neighborhood someone had put up a very large banner, World Peace. And, you know, it just makes you stop and think, this is such a scary time, and we would like nothing better than to have peace in these areas. Yeah, this is uh, ironically a great uh, moment to remind us of that. And uh, when we hear the stories, on both sides, of course, the... uh, the, uh, horrendous attack, and then now the the bombardment uh, and uh, punishing of the Palestinian population for the deeds of Hamas. And and uh, I'm sure so many people are shaking their heads and wondering, why can't they figure this out? Why, why can't they sit down and come up with a long-term solution? We have been in contact with a former UH student and just found out that she was able to get out of Tel Aviv to Spain. It was the only country she could get out to. But she arrived there at, in Barcelona and is trying to make her way back to the U.S. Happy for her. And uh, I, I know that it's challenging even to get out of Israel. But <laughs> getting out of Gaza is is basically been impossible. And, I mean, here we've got American citizens doing good deeds for a charitable foundation. And they're saying... Uh, literally, physically, with the Doctors Without Borders from France, who are very experienced at this kind of predicament. But for a week now, they haven't been able to get out, and uh, powers that be haven't been able to negotiate it. I think one of the catches is that, evidently, Egypt is willing to open its borders on the condition that Israel 
and Hamas allow the United Nations aid convoys to go in. And everyone agrees to that in principle, except I think Israel was concerned about security and inspecting the, the aids, the aid convoys. And that's where things broke down the last couple of days. And uh, it's just uh, this really unfortunate that we can't figure out a way to get some of these aid workers out, you know, obviously not military, but everyone wants to do a deal. And, uh, and I don't understand politics are complicated. For you and your family, this has just been, you know, a real roller coaster and uh, are keeping our fingers crossed and sending good thoughts so that something in this logjam breaks through and that she can have safe passage. We're obviously hopeful and optimistic, and we're very fortunate. Although Ramona has no children, she's got a cadre of nieces and nephews across the nation from New York to Hawaii, and uh, they're very astute technically and uh, media savvy as well. And so they've really done a good job of um, banding together and creating media kits, drop boxes online. They've contacted television stations across the country, East Coast and Washington and Hawaii, uh, and uh, working uh, with the senators and contacting the senators and congresspersons from all these states, Massachusetts, New York, Washington, Hawaii, and even Colorado. So um, we're being very active. And so that's is partly more exhausting, but it's uh, making us feel like we're, we're helping and we're not just sitting by watching. So we're working the phones and the emails and uh, a couple of them, my daughter and another cousin, are going to be in Washington, D.C. knocking on doors along with the uh, founder of the Foundation Palestine Children's Relief Fund, the foundation that my sister was working for. He's going to be in uh, D.C. and so they're going to be uh, knocking on the doors of the Hawaii congressional delegation, as well as uh, Washington and Colorado. Yeah. Do you know how many other Americans are with her? There's one other doctor. Her name is Dr. Zin, Z-I-N-D, and she was interviewed on CNN very early in the violence, uh, I believe last week, Sunday, because they're working for the same foundation, Palestine Children's Relief Fund. But they're, uh, as far as I know, the only other uh, people that they're with, Westerners, are the uh, doctors, uh, doctors without borders. Mm. They know if some of them are American. Probably right. some are. So your sister, she grew up where? She was born and raised in Honolulu. So mm-hmm. she grew up in Honolulu and uh, attended for high school, ninth mm-hmm. through 12th grade. She attended Hawaii Baptist Academy. She went okay. off to college on the mainland, came back and taught at Hawaii Baptist Academy for a couple or a few years. Mm. She went back to graduate school uh, to learn the... Uh, skills of athletics. Mm-hmm. Did up at the University of Washington. She was a, a lecturer there and worked in the clinic, specialized in uh, children, teaching people how to uh, create and use uh, artificial limbs. And that was Miles Okamura, whose sister Ramona is trying to get out of Gaza before Israel begins its ground assault in the area. It comes after a Hamas attack on Israel that killed more than 1,400. At least 200 people were taken hostage, and some 2,000 people were killed in Gaza as a result of the Israeli counterattack. Okamura's nieces started a campaign around bring Auntie Ramona home. They are actively advocating for help. We did get a chance to talk to Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono this weekend about the dilemma of U.S. citizens caught up in the violence of the region. I know that, uh, that the, our government is doing everything we can, including chartering planes to enable American citizens to uh, leave. But it, it is a very, very dangerous, challenging situation. 
I know everything from just getting to the airport to getting visas if they want to get into Egypt or, or some other country just to get to a safer spot. Anything else that, that uh, I don't know, that we can do to maybe try and step this up? This war needs to end. But until it does, uh, American commitment to support Israel's right to defend itself remains. But at the same time, yes, there's a humanitarian crisis and we need to figure out a way to enable a humanitarian corridor. Those are discussions with Qatar involved and with Egypt. Um, I'm, my hope is that it can be put together ASAP, but it is a, a very dangerous situation. The war needs to end. But again, you know, I want to reiterate our country's commitment to Israel. That was Senator Maisie Hirono talking about the growing conflict between Israel and Hamas, the group that controls the Gaza Strip and who launched a surprise attack on Israel citizens less than two weeks ago. In a statement signed by Senators Brian Schatz and Chris Van Hollen from Maryland and Peter Welch from Vermont, the three Democratic senators condemned the violence of recent weeks. Uh, the statement goes on to say, every effort must be made to prevent further civilian deaths and suffering and allow humanitarian aid to reach those in need. A just war cannot be won with the strictest adherence to civilian protection, as difficult as that is with a terrorist adversary that does not share those standards, end quote. The senators say they welcome President Biden's naming of a special envoy to the Middle East to address humanitarian issues. StoryCorps, a nonprofit that produces content for NPR, was in Hawaii last year. Its Military Voices initiative provides a platform for veterans, service members, and their families to share their stories. The StoryCorps team collected local stories from across the islands, and we're featuring some of them over the next few weeks as we approach Veterans Day. HBR host John Zach highlights the voice of a Big Island mother whose son was injured in combat while in Afghanistan. This is StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative. Hawaii Island resident Carla Oriana is a pacifist and a practitioner of ahimsa, the principle of compassion. As a mother, she came face to face with her greatest fears when her son was deployed to Afghanistan. Good morning, world. My name is Carla Oriana. I am 72 years old this year. I'm recording from the very north point of the Big Island of Hawaii, out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, where King Kamehameha was raised. It's a place that makes you strong. I'm grateful to be here. I am a Blue Star mother. My son was in the Air Force, and he's a wounded warrior. He was severely injured in Afghanistan at just the precious age of his early 20s. I was raised to be a naturalist. I uh, also was introduced to ahimsa, nonviolence, through yoga. I had just graduated with um, a certification in yoga for veterans with PTSD. There were no military members in my family. We kind of joke about being Scottish and losing the castle because we were all lovers instead of fighters. A family member encouraged Carla's young son to join the Air Force, where he would help to train pilots in emergency survival techniques. The only reason I agreed was because he was going to go into the SEER program, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, Escape. If he wanted to carry on the family tradition of being a naturalist and helping Air Force pilots to survive in the wilderness 
when they were shot down or however it happened, then I accepted that. And I filled out the paperwork that said he is the last of his line. There are no other cousins or brothers or sisters on my side or his late father's side. He was in an armored vehicle in Afghanistan down in some valley. And an RPG came in through the gunner's port and blew up inside and blew off his fingers. Now, you know, when you are a mother or a father and your child is firstborn, and you count those precious little fingers and toes, and you see that they're all there. You did a good job. You, you ate well. You didn't drink or smoke or do drugs when you were pregnant. You wanted to give your child the best of everything. He lost those precious fingers. It also blew up the back of his leg. I'm grateful to his companions that were able to tie it off so he didn't bleed all the way out. Somehow he was able to get drug out or crawled out of the vehicle and lie there in the dirt while bullets were going all around him. And he thought that was it. I'm so grateful that I'm a Blue Star mother, but let me tell you, I feel for every single Gold Star mother. StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative is a collaboration with Hawaii Public Radio. I'm your producer and host, John Zack. Local support for StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative, comes from Hawaii Pacific University with military campus programs for service members and their families on base, on campus, and online. hpu.edu slash military. After the murder of George Floyd, there were mass protests, corporate pledges, and swelling public support for Black Lives Matter. And then just all of a sudden, it just seemed to be over. But has the social justice movement lost its way? You ask three different activists what defund the police means, and you'll get three different answers. Race, class, and elite capture of the social justice movement. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Our reality check today is about rail and the efforts by Hawaiian Electric to recoup costs spent around a station that has put, been put on hold. Uh, so Honolulu Civil Beats, uh, Chad Blair, joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so this story is by Kevin Dayton, who's been monitoring the, the work on that project, the very expensive project, Skyline. Uh, <laughs> that it is. And how many times have we said this? Uh, I think currently it's 10 years uh, delayed in terms of where it should be and billions of dollars over budget. Well, this is an interesting uh, angle, something that I hadn't really thought about, but because the rail line is no longer at least for now, going from East Kapolei all the way to Alamoana Center, right? It's going to stop uh, really somewhere downtown. They call it the Civic Center, but that's really South Street and Halakazila Street. Because of that, uh, some parts uh, uh, are not as expensive. There's less power that is being consumed, for example. And so this particular case is an electrical substation. The work uh, was partially done. The design work was completed completely. And this is something that Hawaiian Electric did. It was initially going to cost almost $9 million for the substations near Leeward Community College. But in fact, uh, because of the less, uh, the less need for power to power the train, uh, it's not needed any longer. Well, here's the problem. Hawaiian Electric spent $2 million to build that electrical substation. And now they say Hart is on the hook to reimburse them. Yes, and, and the story points out that uh, the rail authority deferred that uh, Pearl Highlands park and ride facility, which kind of cut back the, the need for more power, I guess. 
Exactly. Remember, it was going to be 1,600 parking stalls, a park and ride facility, as you say. Uh, that was going to reduce cost as well. Uh, we are not hearing back from Hart, by the, by the way. Kevin did try and uh, reach Hart, but Hawaiian Electric uh, did respond in a statement to Kevin saying, you know, we did the work that was part of the contract, and we feel that is important uh, to be reimbursed for the work. But, yeah, an interesting angle that because of the short, shorter line, the reduced power uh, consumption, in some cases, actually leading to reduced costs. But here, work that was already contracted long before that decision to stop the rail line well short of Ala Moana. Yeah, and I know that they uh, have been talking about finding another parking garage, right? Because you do want um, folks, you know, from, um, oh gosh, Central Oahu to to you know, make it convenient them for to you know to hook up with um, the train at some point, and so all those things you delay them. <sighs> if we ever you know get it built right, oh my gosh. We were just yeah we were just talking about this last week. Kevin had a, a story on how they are trying to reroute some of the bu- the buses. Uh, Honolulu has a pretty comprehensive bus system, and uh, to have it serve the Halakavila. South Street area, the so-called Civic Center area, that's going to mean shutting down uh, parts of the roads over there. And I think we were reporting just last week how they're going to cut down some trees. That's mm-hmm. another story that we've already reported. But in this case, uh, the idea is to get more buses, and that has something to do with this as well. Currently, um, and I don't know, have you rid- have you ridden it yet? Have you gone on Skyline? Yes, I have. And, and <laughs> here's the thing, though. I was just down there, uh, you know, by the old sports authority, thinking sure. oh gosh you know there's so much that's that's coming up around that area and then you just think well it's not going to Ala Moana and you know how are the talks with Howard Hughes and and that whole land condemnation thing I mean that's just right. another thing that weighs exactly. on us right and that was there the sports authority on, on Ward Avenue right mm-hmm. um so yes I I too have ridden it but of course it only goes from from East Kapolei which is pretty close to where the UH West Oahu campus is uh, to Ala Moana Stadium. And of course, the stadium now is, is closed. That's a whole other discussion. But the, the, the rail agency, Hart, still has to award a contract for the last three miles, which would be from Middle Street uh, to the Civic Center. And those three miles will also include uh, six stations, places where people can get on and off, off of Skyline. So we'll see how that's going to turn out. Uh, but uh, as we go through that urban corridor along Dillingham Boulevard into town, there is concern that we're going to see uh, more cost, and you wonder whether they're going to have to cut back on some other work that is planned. There are still those that hold out hope that rail will make it to Alamoana, but that's not the case for now. 11 miles of the 19-mile route up and running for now. Yeah, so we'll just have to keep an eye on these costs and see what they negotiate, uh, you know, Hart and Hawaiian Electric and uh, yeah, hopefully it doesn't uh, uh, tap out the taxpayers. Exactly. Thank you, Catherine. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story online at civilbeat.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today on The Daily, the House of Representatives still has no speaker, crippling a vital branch of the government. I spoke with my colleague, Katie Edmondson, about the latest turn in the saga of the leaderless house. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Merriman's Restaurants on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai. Details and reservations at merrimanshawaii.com. Manovai, the source of life, explores the history of several Native Hawaiian practices and the connection with health and social justice. It taps 14 renowned cultural experts and was gathered by three University of Hawaii professors. They all work in the Thompson School for Social Work and Public Health. The conversations Russell Subiono talked with one of the authors, Kukuna Okala Yoshimoto, about the book. The movement to bring back indigenous knowledge and to take a closer look at indigenous knowledge as holding some solutions to problems today. That seems to be a movement that is gaining more and more attraction. Is that something that you and the other authors are relatively new to, or is that something that you all have always believed? It's something that I can speak for Noreen and I as, mm-hmm. as Hawaiians, but we, it's something that is innate in us that has always been there, maybe dormant for a little bit. And, and we really look at the historical uh, accounts of what happened to Native Hawaiians as one of the reasons why it kind of went, we like to say it never went away. It just kind of went underground a little bit. It went into hiding a little bit for fear of, you know, judgment, persecution, all of those things that comes with colonization. But really, we we like to acknowledge that it's always been there. It's just a matter of bringing it forth and calling upon it. And so there, there have always been key members of the community, most of them who are kupuna or elders now, who held that knowledge and, and, and kept teaching, again, kind of underground-ish. It wasn't like an advertised thing like it, you would think it would be. But And the other thing I want to mention here, too, is, is a lot of the practices were ohana practices or family practices. So not necessarily was it being offered in, you know, community settings. I won't say it never was, but most of it was, you know, kept within the ohana, which, which again, really speaks to the diversity of the approach in each practice. So not every... For example, Ho'oponopono practitioner does it the same exact way. It really depends on how they were taught and how their family traditions kind of are woven into their own practice. The other thing I want to mention here is, is that the, the kumu who are featured in this book is, is by no means comprehensive. It's not everybody. It's, it's just a handful that a lot of them have personal connections to one or, or multiple of us as authors, friends, colleagues, mentors. When you and the other authors were going through the process of writing this book and you were connecting with each of the kumu in the book did you and the other authors already know who you wanted to talk to or did one kumu kind of lead to talking to another kumu i i get the feeling it's like you talk to one kumu and like oh you know who you should really talk to this person 
So there's a course that's being taught in the Thompson School of Social Work and Public Health. It's an interdisciplinary course called Kia Omao. And that has its own history. But briefly, this is kind of what led to the book. Or, or it could even be looked at as vice versa. So there's, it's a class where we bring in a different kumu every week that talks about their particular practice as it relates, again, to social justice and health. And so we already had, uh, Noreen already had this idea of, of this course, interdisciplinary course, and then she thought, how wonderful would it be for the course to have a reader that goes along with it? So not only is it a reader for the course, but it, it has implications and, and relevance to many other different populations or areas of, of knowledge. So I think the beginning of it started with who we know. We kind of sat there and, and talked about who is in our circle, who are our mentors, who are their mentors. And, and it kind of just led that way. One interesting kind of connection that came in is my grand auntie. So my grandma's sister is Sarah Keahi, and she is one of the first Hawaiian language teachers in, in Hawaii. So we, we did her chapter on Olelo. So it was a nice, you know, really close connection for me to to be able to interview my grand aunt and, and hear her story and her journey of, of how she became a Kumu Olelo Hawaii and what that meant for her. I think that's another big part of the story that you'll kind of see when you get into it. But it really does show the passion and desire to perpetuate all of these things in, in various spaces. So yeah, I think it was a natural gathering of who we know, who they know, and then and then kind of bringing it all together in that way. As you're gathering all this knowledge from these kumu, I imagine there's much you already knew, but I also imagine that there were some bits here and there that maybe were pleasantly surprised to learn. Can you talk about some of the new things that kind of opened your eyes to something different? One of the things that kind of came up as a theme, I only were, was able to interview four Kumu. So we kind of split it up that way, four, four, four. So the four that I interviewed, one of the themes that came up for them that was relative to me that surprised me was the point in their life at which they began their journey. So I think coming into it, I thought, oh, wow, these are very, you know, high revered, esteemed Kupuna who must have practiced their whole life from birth, you know, but a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them started later in life. And again, I think it's in reference to, you know, the historical cultural trauma that happened, things going on the ground, not being proud of being Hawaiian and the practices. But one thing or another led each of them to where they are today. And so it was very comforting to me because I, I have a similar story where I wasn't raised, you know, steeped in Hawaiian culture and practices. But it wasn't until later in my life that I started to gain interest and, and explore those those um, areas. And so it, it was surprising to me that that the ones I interviewed anyway kind of started later in life and it was okay for them, you know, and look what they are today. They're just revered, esteemed culture keepers. The other thing I think that surprised me was just in general, their journey. You rarely get to kind of sit and think about an individual and how they came to be. I mean, you can kind of make assumptions and guess how they came to be, but to actually sit with them and hear each of their journeys was just so valuable for me as as a young Hawaiian social worker who who's looking to you know, live as best as I can in both worlds, so to speak. So some of these kumu, the elder ones especially, you know, lived through many of the changes. And so to to hear their story and their journey of triumph, resilience, and, and things like that was just awesome. It was an awesome way to solidify, affirm me. I know it's not about me, but but it really helped me to be confident in myself and, and the direction my path is heading in. 
I've also read that this collection of stories celebrates and perpetuates Kanaka values and reveals ancestral solutions to challenges confronting present and future generations. Can you give some examples of ancestral wisdom that today's generation can use to overcome challenges that they may face today? The one for me that's most obvious is Ho'oponopono, or loosely translated as you know familial reconciliation, problem-solving type things. So I think that's one practice that was, you know, innately ingrained in all ohana in Hawaii in history. And it was a way for Hawaiian families to address everything from the small problems to the really big problems in the immediate. And and they knew that if you didn't address them in the immediate, that it would compound itself. It would grow and become something much worse. So I think a lot of families, my family, you know, not ousted from this, this absolutely includes my family too, that we have a tendency to not to address these problems for whatever reason. It could be, you know, societal norms. It could be cultural, other cultural norms and half Japanese. So that's a different story because they're very much like, don't talk about it, don't say about it. And so I think bringing practice like Ho'oponopono back to families is one concrete way we can see the change that can begin to happen. I'm lucky enough to be a haumana of a Ho'oponopono practitioner. So I'm learning currently too what that means and what my role is, my future role will be. And so that's kind of the overarching interwoven type things throughout those types of practices is, is we're not here to to heal you. We, we're here to help you heal yourselves, basically, so that you know, it, it restores that that practice within the ohana that they won't ever have to seek help from outside. I think that's one example. Another example is lomi, lomi, lomi. So that's like the massage. We were so privileged to interview and share Keola Chan's story. He is a healer in multiple areas, but perhaps most known for his lomi. And he talks about how in Hawaiian thinking, when it manifests into the physical, when you have an ailment physically that needs a lomi practitioner, it's kind of late in the game. It already manifested into the physical. And so Hawaiians also believed in the unseen and the unheard and the unknown. And, and acknowledging that those spaces are, are sometimes larger than the known seen spaces, meaning 80% is unseen and unknown, whereas you know only 20 is, is is the physical in the now. And so it's all about Acknowledging that and sharing with families that, you know, your spiritual, emotional side is absolutely important. Mental health is absolutely important. One thing that's important is it it, it kind of um, it allows folks to see the larger picture. Right. So some of sometimes we see Lomi as, oh, yeah, I get this thing in my back. I just got to go get Lomi and not really making the connection that, oh, my God, this thing probably manifested from this fight I had two days ago with my girlfriend and just kind of. Did that. So I think that's part of it too, is teaching families about the, the health and healing perspective of Hawaiians and, and what it meant as a as a continuum, because it's really not a standalone. There was always things happening in tandem with each other. And so I think there are over 23, I think, Hawaiian healing practices, and we only know and practice a handful of them. And so this is just like a drop in the bucket, a start, I think, a start of a conversation, a start of a process, a start of hopefully inspiration to others to search for those other healing practices and bring them forth. And what do those things mean? Do you have a favorite story as you were going through your part of the process for the book? I think for me, something that was special that stood out was being able to interview my grand aunt. It wasn't planned in the beginning, but we were looking for someone who had experience, knowledge, and language. And immediately I thought of my auntie. And so it was so special for me to sit with her in her home and 
be able to ask her some questions about her upbringing, her family life. I, I got to hear stories about my great grandparents who I had never met and I never knew these stories. So it was an added benefit, I would say, for, for me to to interview her. And, and it was very special to have that. And, and I think now that I'm sharing, you know, with my family, I, I think it's now having that, that ripple effect where now my cousins can read about the journey and learn about our kupuna and things like that. So that to me was the most special and it's very specific to me. I'm sorry that, that that's what it is, but. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Kukuna Okala, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed talking to you. My pleasure, Russell. That was UH professor Kukuna Okala Yoshimoto talking with HBR's Russell Subiano. The book, Kamanovai, The Source of Life, is available through the University of Hawaii Press. Yoshimoto says 100% of the sales of the book will go to the Barbara Cox Anthony Endowment at UH. The fund is committed to improving the health and quality of life for Hawaii's older adults. We'll have a link to the book on the conversation page of our website later today. South Korea's K-beauty industry is booming, but at what cost? It's a question posed by journalist Elise Hugh, who gives us a glimpse of a bit of the ugliness behind the beauty world. She takes a closer look at attitudes about how technology, skin care, plastic surgery, and more shape how women think of themselves. Uh, Hugh spent three years as NPR's sole bureau chief, and her findings on consumerism in Korea prompted her to write a book. The title is Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Hugh recently talked with The Conversation's Stephanie Han. I was really struck by your discussion of the technological gaze and this idea of looking at ourselves through technology. And I also thought it was uncannily similar to the W.E.B. Du Bois idea, this double consciousness of looking yeah. at ourselves from the perspective of others and an othering of ourselves as women, the subject of the technological gaze. Sure. I think anyone anyone else who identifies as a woman out there has probably experienced this notion or this concept of seeing ourselves as others might expect to see us. So it's kind of a disembodied feeling. And in the rise of second wave feminism, this was often this feeling of double consciousness, as the boys described it, was often put at the foot of men as this male gaze, that women were seeing themselves as men might see them, and so performing for the male gaze. But now, because we are living in front of screens so often, and the screen, and the cameras that used to only be on celebrities or influential people are now on all of us, and we're putting cameras on ourselves. We are learning to perform to social algorithms. So the technological gaze or the artificial gaze is an algorithmically determined set of ideal traits for our face or our body parts that social media and now AI tools feed us through the social content that we scroll. And it's different from the male gaze in that in the the notion of the male gaze, we were sort of performing for the eyes of men. Now it's more complicated. We are performing 
for a machine, right? This machine-driven algorithm, and it's largely internalized. It represents a kind of power shift away from an external gaze to a self-policing or more narcissistic notion, and it's gender neutral. I guess I was wondering about the relationship between self-discipline and machinery and who's behind the machinery too. I've thought a lot about where beauty ideals and the beauty imperative comes from. And usually, even before technology, there's always been kind of idealized beauty traits. And typically it was a performance of class. So you wanted to look like those of higher classes. You wanted to look like aristocrats. We trace some history um, in Flawless and talk about kind of the standard for really pale porcelain white skin in Northeast right. Asia and how that predates colonialism even. Oh, and yeah. the reason why it predates colonialism is because having really fair skin was seen as evidence that you were rich enough and of high enough status to stay out of agrarian jobs, to stay out of the field, to not have to be outdoors. Again and again, the performance of beauty has been the performance of wealth. And so when we talk about what's driving a lot of our beauty standards today, I think a profit motive does. Our media, <laughs> whether it's television or film or advertising, the products that are sold to us to try and fix perceived flaws that can be fixed by, by purchasing and consuming, a lot of that is just kind of a capitalistic engine, I think, at the heart of it. Right. There's a character in the in the book that says it's a choice and it's not a choice, right? So yes. it's about how do we navigate then or, you know, what are we surrendering? You know, is it possible to discipline ourselves out of self-discipline? <laughs> yeah, I think it it is. It is possible. I mean, it's going to be the project of my entire adult life, right? <laughs> the rest of my life right. to try and... Um, resist some of the culture that teaches me that my looks are my personal responsibility and that my worthiness is tied to my appearance. I think that's a lot of the programming that we've all had to contend with. But I write about that self-care and this notion of self-care has really been co-opted by the wellness industry. And so often now we think of self-care as like crystals or bubble baths. <laughs> or something mm -hmm. that you can buy. But, but originally, the notion of self-care was about self-expression and self-preservation. And so what we ultimately need to do to hold on to our own agency is to think about kind of three big ideas. And they are embodiment, so sort of seeing ourselves, really being and appreciating our bodies from inside out. So instead of seeing ourselves as whatever we look like in the mirror, really understanding ourselves in a much more nuanced and spiritual way. So embodiment is something that is really important. The other is worthiness and really striving towards not everybody believing that we're beautiful, but instead to believe that we're worthy, flaws included. So I think there's a worthiness revolution that needs to happen. And then finally, Centering the notion of self-care as caring for one another. So mutuality is really important and caring about community. So much social science has proven that 
we do better and we feel better as humans when we are helping one another and we're asking for help. And I think when we get in this individualistic kind of competition of looking over our shoulder and seeing who's prettier and who's doing better and then measuring ourselves by what we look like and measuring our morality by our appearance, then we get into a zero-sum game, which is really sort of against nature and against kind of the notion of what makes us feel whole and content as human beings. Yeah, I completely agree. I was very curious about that link between community care and self-care. I guess what you're in the end proposing is an idea of redefining. So self-care might be good child care for everyone. I get into why I consider South Korea the most extreme beauty culture in the world. And it's not just because it's technologically advanced and is the plastic surgery capital of the world, four times more plastic surgeons per capita than the United States, which was seen as previously as a place where there was a lot of cosmetic surgery. And it's not just because there's screens everywhere and screens that wrap around buildings and screens on skyscrapers and, and deep in the bowels of the subway, you never lose connection. That is all crucial to why South Korea is a place where your looks matter a lot. But you're talking about, you know, and this is a culture that you've grown up with, so you can speak to it far better than me. The, the notion in South Korea of kind of a we-ness, right? This, right. this sense, and I say we-ness, right? This, this sense that we're all in it together. And I think I have a line in the book about how everyone else is doing it is a really strong vibe in South Korea. So when a trend would happen, everybody would rush to follow the trend, whatever it was. At the time, I think it was churros. And so all the churro places had long lines behind it. And then there was a time where coated almonds were really big, and everybody was rushing to get coated almonds. And when it's time to wear the trench coats in the fall, everybody was switching into trench coats. When it's to the black puffer jackets, everybody was in the black puffer jackets. And so under that kind of mentality or that kind of we attitude, like we-ness, it's really hard to stick out. There's a lot of social pressure to fit in and, and to conform, and almost as a matter of respect for one another. Like I really stood stood out when my arms when I when I wore a tank top on the subway right. and my shirt was a little bit too low. Right. Uh, because in South Korea that's considered rude, you know? And so you don't want to go against the appearance norms too much because you'll get judged for it. On the flip side, you are appraised well if you do meet the appearance standards. And it's pretty didactic. Like if you're trying and this is where modern times and kind of consumerism and capitalism come into play when humans are kind of commodified in this sort of squid gamesian kind of world where there are winners and there are losers and when humans are commodified and we're sort of competing against one another you're trying to wring the most out of an asset and that asset is a human so you can get pretty prescriptive about how humans are supposed to look and how humans are supposed to behave so you have a vestigial Confucian or Neo-Confucian idea, like we're all in it together and like don't stick out and respect one another. And that's all something that I, I honor because I, I am Chinese-American or Taiwanese-American. And so this is also part of my culture and my people that are originally from Northeast Asia. But then in modern times, you, you have that idea and it like gets remixed or it, gets, it goes on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> and right. I think that's what you're, you're getting at here and could be the, the basis of a whole other book. Right. What would beauty, a beauty definition be that 
in your mind would originate from a woman-centered perspective and body? I mean, I, I can't I, even fathom it, actually. <laughs> well, we, we must, right? Because individual change at a critical mass is what can, get, can inspire and give permission for more women to make shifts. And that puts the pressure on the system to reorganize and reorganize toward a vision. And, and I think that vision should be one that celebrates diversity and difference in humanity that's inherent to humanity and inherent to nature. Because what I saw in South Korea was this pressure to look one certain way and one idea of beautiful or one very small, narrow range of what was beautiful. And what it did is it erases all difference. And it marginalizes everybody who can't fit in, especially people who are considered overweight. Right. Like the thinness standard is something I get into. And the thinness standard is so extreme that if you are overweight, there are no clothes for you. Right. And that pretends, and we're supposed to pretend as if there is nobody overweight in an entire population. Yeah. And, or nobody with acne or moles in an entire population. So my, the way I want to see physical beauty is beauty that really celebrates difference and diversity because that is the truest um, I think that's truest how we are by nature um, I think that's the way nature is like if you saw a dog at a pound you know at a, at a shelter that might have mangy hair or might be really thin or might be really big or whatever it was like that dog wouldn't have less worth than you know a purebred golden retriever or something but in a culture where beauty matters a lot and that we have lookist attitudes, and I define lookism as discrimination on the basis of appearance, in a culture that has lookism, um, a lookism reigns for humans, then you are essentially kind of picking winners and losers among humans based on how we look. And so that is a really limited and problematic definition of beauty. So I would see beauty in difference. I would see beauty in diversity. And most importantly, I would see beauty as something far beyond the physical. I want to recast beauty as something more akin to truth or love, which is a spiritual idea, which is nuanced. It's something that we see in art. If we can celebrate difference and diversity and if we can break the link between beauty and sheer appearance, or just physical appearance, if we can break that link, then I think we're going in the right direction. That was Elise Hugh talking to HPR Stephanie Hahn about her book, Flawless, Lessons in Looks in Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. I'm that girl that drive you crazy But you're killing me alone Don't you think you may be Always supernatural Don't you understand what's all Looking to a Christopher I'm not like this other girls at all Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we check in on an effort to get rid of the little fire ants in Maui. Got an ant story to share? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the conversation segments on our website or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.